Paul contrasts faith, not with unbelief. He doesn't say some people believe, some people don't believe. Some people have faith, some people have disbelief. Some people, they, they just know for sure that Jesus is the Lord of their lives, and other people, they have doubt. He does not do that. He says the opposite of faith is boasting. That's interesting. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Nathaniel Van Daventer. Uh, my wife Olivia and I have been attending Gateway for a year as of a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with Olivia being baptized here this past January. I'm going to be reading our verse today, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. I encourage you to open your Bibles and read along. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the, to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who have been worshiping with us uh, throughout this series, you know that much of what Paul has been doing for the first 14 chapters is addressing a, a series of issues and questions that was raised by the leaders in this tiny little church in Corinth. So they're saying, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? We have issues with this. And Paul is responding in kind, seeking to give them practical wisdom based on God's word, based on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them um, through those difficult topics. But the last two chapters of this little letter are different. The last two chapters are devoted to answering why all of that matters in the first place. So, for instance, based on everything we've covered so far, why is it important for us to consider how to use our bodies, what to eat? Why is it important for us to consider how we ought to treat one another, how we shouldn't bring each other to court or demand lawsuits of each other? Why it's important for us to consider how to use our gifts for the sake of the body of Christ, not for the sake of ourselves? Why are those things important? Why is it important for us to consider what to do, how to do it, day to day in our lives? And all of it hinges on what we're going to learn in the last two chapters. And the last two chapters are all about this, the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus. 
That's the focus. That's why I've entitled uh, the message today, Why Easter Matters in September. It's not just a day for us, one day a year we celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus, yeehaw, but it's every single day this is something that ought to influence and impact our day-to-day lives. It's something that is fundamental to the Christian life. It's something I think that we don't think about often enough. So here's something I want to put before you this morning, and we're going to keep returning to it, but this is what Paul wants us to recognize. I put it this way. Our future hope, that is, our sense of what our future holds, should dramatically shape our present character and the way we live our lives today. I mean, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Let me just give you an example of this. Let's just say that you have two different women who are doing the same job, same menial tasks, same working conditions, same number of hours that they're working every day. There's only one difference between these two women. One of them has been promised $15,000 at the end of her, her year, and the other woman has been promised $15 million at the end of the year. Now, let me ask you a question. Are these two women going to have a different perspective with respect to their job? Yeah, of course they are. Why? Not because they're being shaped by their present circumstances, which are exactly the same, but because they're being shaped by their future hope on what they anticipate their future to be. And that's just money. That's fleeting. That's here today and is gone tomorrow. How much more for those of us who have stepped over the line to follow Jesus and we anticipate a day in which he will return and make all things new and then we get to sing together when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as of the sun. We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Imagine if we had that sort of conviction how we'd live our lives today. Right now, we would be so changed and influenced by that reality. And Paul says in these last two chapters, that's the way I want you to start thinking about your life. To not only be shaped by your present circumstances, your trials, your tribulations, your challenges, but to be shaped by the future hope that you know that you have in Jesus. So let me give you one more uh, real example of how this has played out in human history with Christians. This one's really fascinating to me. Uh, There's been a lot of books written addressing the development of Christianity in the first four centuries, but my favorite book is a book called The Rise of Christianity. There it is. If if you like to read, I encourage this. I, I really encourage you to pick this up, especially if you're interested in church history and sociology, things like that. It's a great book. And in there, Stark addresses three ways that first and second century Christians were remarkably different from the rest of their neighbors. Remarkably different. Here's the first one. Whenever Christians were persecuted for their faith, that is, uh, they were tortured, they were treated unjustly, they were put to death unjustly, they did not respond with terrorism. They did not respond with retaliation. They didn't respond to violence with violence. They didn't respond with guerrilla warfare. Rather, they died praying for their enemies. Where'd they pick up that idea? Here's the second one. Stark points out that at the height of the Roman Empire, Rome had conquered the entire known world. 
north, south, east, west, Pax Romana, Roman peace, and for all the things that it was to have Roman peace in the entire known world, there were also significant challenges. And one of the biggest challenges was the ethnic tension that arose during this time period. When everyone was subjugated to Rome, when everyone was kind of in this melting pot of a culture, there is no cultural uh, diversity within that, and then there begins to be a pecking order of cultures and races and ethnicities. Here are the important ones. Here are the less important ones. And this was a significant issue in the first, second, third, and fourth century. And yet, Christians and churches were the only institution in the world that did not say there was a pecking order of ethnicities, but drew them all in because they had a belief that all had the image of God. They were part of the Imago Dei. Each and every single one of them. There weren't people who were more important and less important. They were all image bearers. Every single one of them. And Christians were the only ones with that perspective. Where'd they get that idea? Third and finally, and this is one that I shared with you a couple weeks ago, whenever a great epidemic rose up in urban centers in Rome, most people fled the cities. But Christians stayed. Christians stayed. When everyone was running out of the city, Christians were running in, and they tended to the sick and to the dying, even though many Christians themselves died as a result of their aid. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago that people sick on their deathbeds, they would look into the eyes of these Christians and they would say, why are you here? Why are you doing these things? Why are you risking your life for someone you don't even know? And they would all say the same thing. Someone died for me. I'm willing to risk my life for you. And it was an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. And so here's, here's what I want you to see. Through all these examples, these Christians were shaped by something. They were shaped by something. Why were Christians so much more compassionate to the sick and the dying, risking their own lives? Why, why were they so much more forgiving to people around them, especially to their persecutors? Why were they so much more ethnically inclusive than anyone else they had ever met? It's because they were, their actions were entirely shaped by what they believed their future hope to be. Their future hope. Their present character and the way that they lived their lives was shaped by their future hope. They were shaped by a, a joyous certainty of things that have not yet come to pass. And they knew that regardless of their present circumstances, regardless of their trials, their tribulations, their troubles, that they had an eternal weight of glory awaiting them that Jesus would return again. And that is the message that Paul wants this little church to understand. That is what the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, wants every single person in this room to have deep within their souls. Not just intellectual assent, not just to say, I know something, but to be shaped by it. To be changed by it. And it would change you in the way that you speak, in the way that you walk, in the way that you talk, where you go, how you spend your finances, how you treat your sexuality. Everything would be shaped by the gospel, which stems from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so it might seem odd that Paul would end his book with the foundation. He would end his book with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I want you to see the genius of it. 
Paul, it's like Paul is saying, I don't want you to observe all the righteous rules that I've laid out for you for the last 14 chapters out of dutiful obligation. I don't want you to do this even out of moralism to say, you know what, if, if I follow all these rules, then maybe God will accept me. Maybe God will invite me into heaven. That's the reason why I got to do it. Paul says, no, here's the reason why you observe his rules. Here's the reason why you do this, because you love him based on the love that he has revealed to you, because you want to walk in his ways. That is the central focus that Paul wants to deliver for us today. So look again at your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. He says this, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. If you treat your Bible like a live textbook, circle, highlight, underline, taken your stand. In other words, you're banking on this. You're living on this. And then he says in verse 2, he says, by this gospel, you are saved. What's the next word? Help me out. If. That's interesting. If. What, what is an If. Uh, when I was serving in California, the other pastor I served with, his name was Lambert Sikama, and he said, if I ever wrote a book, it was going to be on the two conjunctions, but and if. That's what he was going to call it. But and if. If and but. Something like that. So there's a good book if you want to chase him to the finish line. There's a good one. But really interesting, if is a conjunction, right? It is a conditional conjunction, which means this will happen only if this happens. Or this won't happen only if this doesn't happen. So here's what we see. He says in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if, conditional, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Hmm, what, what does it mean to believe something in vain? We'll get to that. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul wants this little church to realize that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is core to the Christian life. No surprise there, right? No surprises. This is like Christianity 101 stuff. I know I'm preaching to the choir, and yet Paul has something to say here that is very easy to understand, but it is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit to live out. It's easy to understand, but it is impossible to live out. And that's where he starts. So one more time, I want to read the first two verses. Hear, hear all of this. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, right? Remember when I came? Remember when I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you received, meaning they took it in, they believe it, and on which you have taken your stand, not intellectual assent, you've taken your stand on it. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So here's what I've done. For, for the remainder of our time this morning, I want us to engage three important questions that are tied to the Christian life. I'm going to give all of them to you now, but then we'll walk through them. The first one is, what is faith? What is faith? The second one that we'll get to in just a little bit is, what is the gospel? What, it mean, what does it mean to be a gospel-centered person? And number three, how do I get the gospel into me? 
Not just to believe in something, but to have the gospel shape my life. What is faith? What is the gospel? How do I get the gospel into me? So the first question we're looking at is what is faith? For those of us who have been following Jesus for a long, long time, you know that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast, says Paul. So it's not by works that we're saved. It is by grace through faith. We even pick up on this in uh, Romans chapter 3. Paul says this. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely, important word, by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. If you're reading ESV versions, it says propitiation which means a substitute who appeases wrath, the atonement through the shedding of his blood, to receive how? By faith. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here's what I find fascinating about this. Paul contrasts faith, not with unbelief. He doesn't say some people believe, some people don't believe. Some people have faith, some people have disbelief. Some people, they, they just know for sure that Jesus is the Lord of their lives, and other people, they have doubt. He does not do that. He says the opposite of faith is boasting. That's interesting. That's interesting. There is a contrast to boasting, and I want you to hang on to that as we move forward this morning. So back to that question, how can someone believe in vain? How is it possible to believe in vain? Say, I believe in something, but it's a moot point because you're not believing in the right way? What is it to believe in vain? And I think one of the challenges that, that we face when it comes to matters of faith is that we don't have a very good working definition. So let me give you a definition of faith based on the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. It is certainty or assurance of what we do not see. That is the definition that the author of Hebrews gives but let me lay out for you what I think are the three most common definitions of faith leading from the least significant to the most significant. So here's the first one. This is what I, I would just like to call, it's probably true, faith. It's probably true. So I, I think there's a lot of Canadians and Americans and people in, in, in uh, first um, century worlds um, who, who kind of have this idea in their mind that if, if they were polled to say, like, do you believe in Jesus? They would say, yeah. I'd vote for that. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord of life and he resurrected and he stands at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and one day he will come to judge the living and the dead? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. That's probably true. Do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster? Yeah, I think that's probably true because I saw a documentary once and I think he's out there. You know, but it doesn't change your life. It doesn't interest you. It doesn't motivate you to live your life in a certain way. It's just intellectual assent. And yet what Paul says, the type of faith that he's talking about is a faith where you have taken your stand. It is not the faith where you say something like, it's probably true. But there's a second way we believe in vain. 
And I think this one might hit a little bit closer to home for some of us. I recall when uh, I first came here about four and a half years ago, we did a sermon series based on a book by Craig Rochelle called Christian Atheist. Some of you might recall that. And so that's what I put in your second note here, Christian Atheist faith. What does it mean to be a Christian atheist? This is a person who genuinely believes that something is true. Like it's not, yeah, I'd probably vote for that. Yeah, that's probably true. It's, no, I totally, totally believe that. If you put a lie detector on me, you hook me all up, and you ask the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again victorious over the grave, and that he is now standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Do you believe that? I would say yes, and there would be no lie. There would be no lie. And yet it has not changed your life. You have absolute certainty, absolute certainty, and yet it doesn't change you. You've heard the word of the Lord. You understand the word of the Lord. Maybe you're even moved by it, but it doesn't move you. It doesn't change you. It doesn't shape your life. And so that is a definition of a Christian atheism kind of faith. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, when talking about this, uh, or sorry, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says that faith without works is what? What's the word? Help me. Dead. That's interesting. Faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not a real faith. And then in that context, James talks about a group of beings who have greater faith than anyone in this room. They have such faith that they shudder at the name of Jesus. Do you remember who those beings were? Who were they? The demons. (laughs) The demons. He says this. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. The only difference between you and them is they shudder at the name of Jesus. They shudder. See, faith is much more than intellectual assent. It's more than, yeah, I'd probably vote for that. But it's even more than, yes, I totally believe in this. But it does nothing to change you or to move you. So here's a third definition of faith that I think Paul is talking about. And I really grappled with how to say this one. I looked at the definition of faith uh, in in the Greek translation. It's the Greek word pistis which means a trustworthy faith or a moving faith or a working faith or a reliable faith. And I think any of those words would work, and yet the word I chose to put in your note sheet is this, a Talmud faith. And that is the Hebrew word for a disciple or a follower. A disciple is someone who follows in the way of their rabbi. I've shared with you before that the greatest compliment that a Talmud disciple could ever receive goes like this. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. It's another way of saying wherever they walk, whatever they step in, they just kind of kick it up on you and it's all over you. You talk like him, you walk like him, you act like him. Wherever he goes, you go. That's the type of faith that Paul is seeking to convey. A faith that moves you. A faith that not only compels you, Not only you understand, but you are moved by it. It shapes your world in the way that you treat your finances, your sexuality, your time, your energy, your focus, your talent. Everything comes under the sphere of, I want to follow that, or in this case, to follow him. That's the faith 
that Paul is addressing to this little church. The type of faith that says this, our future hope should dramatically shape our present character and the way that we live our lives today. That we would have that sort of perspective. Is my faith shaping my life? But I need you to listen very closely to me because this is an extremely important caveat to this conversation. Faith does not mean that we will follow through on this perfectly. It does not mean that. Because every single one of us has a sin nature, the traitor within, that causes us to be self-centered and narcissistic and to think that we know more than God. All of us know that we have moments in our lives in which God tells us to zig and we zag. God tells us, Justin, here's my plan for your life. And I say, I'm going to take your plan and I give you mine. God, I think I'm more important. God, I think I have a better plan. God, I think I know better than you do. And I'm going to go follow my way as opposed to your way. We've all done that. And what Scripture communicates to us is because of our sin nature, every single moment of our lives, we fight against the sin nature that rages within us. And even after we step over the line to follow Jesus, and we are justified freely by his blood, meaning we are declared righteous. And even after maybe years of following Jesus, Progressive sanctification, we call that. Looking like Jesus, acting more like Jesus. We know that progressive sanctification some days feels like two steps forward, three steps back. Right? Have you been there? There have been moments in your life where you have struggled to walk with God. And yet, for, for the life of a Christian, the way that we appeal to this is when I fall, I want to fall forward into the hands of Jesus. That's the faith that Paul is communicating here. Not a, not a faith that saves you, not a faith based on moralism that if I'm good enough, I will walk with Jesus in glory. No, it's the type of faith that recognizes he is the Savior, he is Lord, and I want to follow him every moment of every day. It is a byproduct of my faith in Jesus, is my works, says Paul. And I think that's important because if we stopped at verse two, my fear is we would all just become moralists. And none of us would be shaped by the gospel. And that leads to our second question. What is the gospel? So look with me at verses 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Do you know what first importance means? It means it's firstly important. You're welcome. That's what it means. That Christ died for our sins according to scripture. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. So that is what Paul wants them to see. And so the way I put it in your note sheet, second question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Or the question that I think is being raised in verse 3, what must I believe and do to be made right with God? What must I believe and do to be made right with God? And so in the verse I just read to you, Paul explained the two things that we stand on as Christians today, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again victorious over death and his victory is our victory for those of us who stand with Jesus. But if you look at the cross, instantly the, the cross brings about a great offense. What is the offense of the cross? It is the question, why is the cross necessary? Why is the cross 
necessary? And I think that's the question that we need to come to terms with. So the way I put it in your note sheet, what everyone needs but not everyone wants is a savior. A savior. A redeemer. Someone to pay for our debt. See, the message of the cross is incredibly good news. Make no mistake. I'm I'm not trying to diminish that by any means. But it also bears incredible offense. First, it bears an offense. Even before you can get to the good news, you come smack dab in the face of the bad news. And you look at that cross. It is bloody. It is gruesome. It is grotesque. And when you look at it, you have to ask that question. Christians have to ask it. Non-Christians have to ask it. Why was the cross necessary? Why did Jesus have to go there? Why did he have to stretch out his hands for me and for you? It must bear offense. And so if you're looking at your notes again, the fill in the blank in your note sheet, you'll see that I used uh, two big stained glass words that we only use in church. The words substitutionary atonement. And like I shared with you already, ESV translation says propitiation. Either way, it means a substitute. So not you, someone else gets substituted in. A substitute who appeases the wrath, the just wrath of God. There was sin. It was a gap between us and God. Jesus paid for that so that we could be reunited with him once again. And so once again, the cross is first of all, not most importantly, but it is first of all a great offense to us all. The cross intends to communicate to us that apart from his death, we would all be dead to our sins. It's incredibly offensive. It stands in the face of our modern sensibilities. It stands in the face of our rugged individualism. And I think within that, we typically fall into one of two different camps. Both of them are opposite ends of the spectrum, but I want you to see on the front end that both of them try to do exactly the same thing. So here's the first one. This is the the religious left response what I would just call the the progressive response, where God is typically summarized this way, that I, I just believe in a God of love and acceptance. And he just accepts everybody. God is good. People are inherently good. I'm pretty good too. And all we really need to do is to to try hard and to do our best. And if we do our best, then at the end of our days, then God's going to accept me because he knows, like, I'm not perfect. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I tried and I did pretty good. And you got to see, what's that person doing? They're engaging in an idea that says, God's going to let me in on the basis of my self-salvation. On the basis of my own good deeds. Or my relatively good deeds, because God is a God of love. But on exactly the opposite end of that spectrum, you don't have um, the progressive response. You have the religious right response. And this is typically defined by a moralist. And this is where God is typically described this way. God is good, but people are bad. But, good news, I'm better than most. Yeah, I'm better than most. And God is going to accept me on the basis of my good deeds. And here's what you got to see. Both the progressive and the moralist are saying, God is going to let me in on the basis of my self-salvation. Both of them are saying the same thing. Both of them are anti-gospel nonsense. But we get wrapped up in these. 
all the time. All the time. Both the traditional moralist and the enlightened progressive are dedicated to the project of self-salvation. And in doing so, both of them spit on the cross of Christ. See, because of our sin nature, the traitor within, we all have this desire, this inclination to get out from under the grip of God, to get out from under his thumb, to be my own person, to be my own man, to be the master of my own world. I want to be like God. That was the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the sin of every single one of us, that we don't need God. We just want God's stuff. We're not interested in a relationship with him. We're trying to get out from under his thumb. And both the progressive and the moralist try to do it, albeit in different ways. They're trying to do exactly the same thing. And so we're soft with our own sin because if, if this is a helpful image, and I hope it is, both the moralist and the progressive is kind of like a pig in a pigsty rolling around in the mud. And then at one point, the pig looks around and says, you know what? I'm not quite as dirty as the other pigs in here. As if that's the standard. As if that's the standard. And that's the struggle that we have when it comes to our walk with God. Isaiah chapter 64 says this. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. See, I'm not trying to offend any of you unnecessarily, but we have to see that many times we miss our own depravity and our own foolishness. And I've shared with you before, no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. No one lies to you more than you do. The process of self-deception that we engage in to try to justify ourselves, it is endless. We struggle with it every single day of our lives. I realize that I just called all of us pigs in a pigsty, but we have to realize something here. That first of all, the cross of Christ is offensive. It bears offense because we have to ask the question, why was the cross necessary? We fail to recognize that God is more holy and righteous than any moralist. We fail to recognize that God is more loving and compassionate than any progressive. And the cross of Christ is the evidence of that. The gospel of Jesus is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither morality nor immorality. It's neither moralism nor relativism. It's neither conservatism nor liberalism. Nor is it some halfway point in between. It's none of those things. We believe that Jesus is both just, he's perfectly just, and justifier. And it is revealed most perfectly through the cross of Christ. We ask, why was it necessary? Why was it necessary? Because everyone is wrong and everyone needs Jesus. That's why. Everyone is wrong and everyone needs Jesus. This reminds me of a story when a newspaper asked G.K. Chesterton a question. They wanted him to do a whole write-up on it. And there was one question. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And they, they, they said, well, put it on the front page. You know, I know our readers are interested in this. Why don't you take a couple of columns and put together a response to that question? And so he thought about it for a while. And then he wrote up his answer. And his answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, went like this. 
Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. This is a man who understands the principle of 1 Corinthians 15. That we sing that hymn that we typically sing on Good Friday. Who crucified him? I did. I did. Who put him there? I did. I did. And somehow we have to get into that. We have to allow it to sink deep within our bones. To say, why was it necessary? Why did Jesus have to go there? Because of me. Because of my foolishness. Because of my depravity. I put him there. And so I recognize one of the questions that, that we often ask as Christians is, why is God so angry with sin? Like, why, why is that so important to him? Why couldn't he just say something like, you know what, I'll let bygones be bygones. I forgive you. You know, it, it's okay. Don't, don't worry about it. But you know deep within your bones that that's not a God worth following if there is a God who doesn't care about justice. The wrongdoing in the world that needs to be made right, we all know, every person in this room, that we all know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it must be made right. And so my encouragement to you is to follow whatever God that you want. Just make sure he's worthy of your worship. Just make sure he's worthy of your worship. And we serve a God who is both just and justifier. He doesn't overlook sin. He pays for it. He pays for it. I've given the example to you before. It's kind of a whimsical, silly example, but I think it helps. The example of if you let one of your kids go take out your car for a joyride. They smash the car. What are your choices in that moment? Well, you got two. Number one, you can pay for the debt. Number two, you can treat it as a teachable moment. You can make your son or your daughter pay for the debt. Either way, someone's got to pay, and that's just a car. It's just a car. Here today, gone tomorrow, material things. And yet God cares so deeply about the wrongdoing in his world that he wants wrong to be made right, not just to overlook it, but to be made right because he is perfectly just. See, the reason why God is so angry at sin and evil in the world is because it destroys the world and the people that he has made because he is so filled with loving compassion. God is angry with sin because he loves his world and the people that he has made. And he loves his world and the people that he has made, which is the reason why he's angry with sin. We can't separate them. We can't say, like, why is God, like, angry some days and so happy other days? Like, does he struggle with schizophrenia? Does he have multiple personalities? Like, what's going on? No, they explain each other. Those of you who are parents, you know what it means to be angry at something for the sake of your child. You only know love when you know anger. You only know anger when you know love. And so it is with God. There was a woman some time ago who wrote an essay about the necessity of death and the resurrection of Jesus because she struggled with it, as I think we all do. But then in her essay, she recalled the time in her life when she was watching two talented people that she loved dearly struggle with uh, drug and alcohol abuse. And so she wrote this. We got it up here on the screen. 
She said, I felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. Can't you see? I said to them, don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You're becoming less and less yourself every time I see you. Don't you see what you're doing to the people around you? And then she goes on later in the poem and she says this, real love stands against the deception, against the lie, against the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in experience. And if I, flawed and narcissistic woman that I am, can feel that much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them. And then she ends with this. This always resonates with me. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. It's indifference. So if you or if a friend ever says, you know, like, I, I just don't believe in a wrathful God, an angry God. I just believe in a God who loves and accepts everyone. Then I would, invi I would invite you to ask them this question. How much did it cost for your God to love you? And then they'll respond probably by saying something like, I, I don't know, nothing, I guess. And then you can introduce them to Jesus. Then you can introduce them to Jesus. So what this woman is saying is what we've covered already. The reason why God is angry with sin and evil is because he's so filled with love and compassion. It answers it. And if he wasn't filled with love and goodness, then he just wouldn't care, but he does. And that's what Paul wants this little church in Corinth to not only believe in, but to be shaped by. He wants them to see and to hear these words, look at the cross. See it, my friends. Look straight at it. It's bloody, it's gruesome, it's grotesque. Ask yourself the question, why was it necessary? Who put him there? And if you can respond the same way that I have, that I crucified him, I put him there, then and only then you can go to the next step and you can see the perfect liberty and the perfect love that is shaped by Jesus on that same cross. And it will shape you and move you and you will become a new person. You will become a new person. And so that's the reason why I think Paul starts with 14 chapters of do this, do that, do this, do that. And at the end, he clarifies and he says, I don't want to make you a bunch of moralists. I don't want at the end of this for you to say, you know what, if I follow these words better than the average bear, you know, if I'm sharper than the average tool in the shed, then everything's going to be okay. I want you to be shaped by the gospel. I want you to be shaped by Jesus. I want there to be no boasting among you but for you to put aside boasting and to put on the love and compassion of Jesus most shaped by his death and his resurrection. I want you to be people of the cross. And so we don't say, Jesus, save me on the basis of my morality. We say, Jesus, be my redeemer. Be my savior. Be my Lord. Shape me, mold me, change me. And so here's the point, my friends. Only when you look at the cross 
what it means, why it was necessary, will it change your heart? And that leads to the third question where we're going to end today. How do I get the gospel into me? How do I get it into me? Where it's not just intellectual assent, but it's something that shapes me and molds me, gets inside my soul, gets inside my bones. How do I get it to change me? And here's what I want you to see. Some sort of luck, last, or love, you know, Jesus accepts everybody, God accepts everybody. That's not going to compel anyone to follow Jesus. But that's what I would say to the progressive. But to the moralist, I would say fear doesn't do it either. Fear of hell will, will not do it either. And here's a story kind of to prove it. This is a, <laughs> this is a true story. Um, there was a pastor who was on a call at a hospital. He was at hospice. And one night, in the middle of the night, he got a call, and he ran in. Because typically when he gets calls, it, it means someone is on their deathbed. And typically they, they want to pray, they want to invite family members in. Maybe, just maybe, it's a moment where they want to repent and to follow Jesus, kind of like the thief on the cross. And so pastors cherish these moments. He sprinted in. And when he got there, that person on the bed, he said, Pastor, I, I am so sorry. Listen, i got to explain what just happened. Uh, a half hour ago, a doctor came in, and he said, here's the x-rays. You can look at them, and you can see based on these x-rays, you, you only have a couple of days to live. And, and I, was, I was freaking out, so I called you. But then 15 minutes later, he came back in, and he said, I'm so sorry. It was the wrong x-rays. And so, like, it's okay. Like, I don't know if I'll die in a couple days, but, like, I'm, I'm okay. And you just got to know, like, I'm not really a religious person, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm not really someone who follows Jesus, but for a moment there, I really thought I needed you. See where I'm going? It's a true story. For a moment there, I really thought I needed you. And so here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. Here's what you got to see. Fear cannot awaken love. Only love awakens love. Only love awakens love. Not some cheap, shallow version of love and acceptance that we throw around oftentimes today. But neither moralism or fear of Mr. Bad. The only thing that will shape us is if we look perfectly into the cross of Christ. That's what Paul wants to do for this little church. I've shared with you a couple of times in this series that we've, we've looked at the Shema. That's from Deuteronomy 6, right? The Shema is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Shema means to hear. But Paul wants to stop with this little church, and he says, most of you are Jewish Christians. You know what I'm about to say. There's four layers of hearing. You can hear something. You can understand something. You can even be compelled by something. But I don't want just those first three things. I want you also to be shaped by it, to be moved by it, and for it to move you. How is that possible? How can that happen? Look at the cross. Look at two things. Number one, why was it necessary? And that each and every one of us in this room, that we would respond by saying, I put him there. I crucified him. And then number two, that we would see that Jesus went anyway. Why did he go? To save you and to save me. My friends, let's meditate on that reality so that the gospel will shape us into Christ-centered people. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series. 
focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.